Amen. Well, if you turn in your Bibles to the book of Genesis chapter 11, verses 1 to 9 is our text. As I said, the title of this sermon is The Utopian Delusion of Fallen Man. The Utopian Delusion of Fallen Man. I think that's constantly fallen man's dream. That he will be able to create, if he just has the opportunity, if he just has the uh, help, if we can just do it together, we'll be able to solve all of our problems, fix everything, bring utopia, Shangri-La, whatever you want to call it, El Dorado, to the earth. We'll do it. I almost called this sermon, You Cannot Escape from God. Because that true, that too is true, and we see that in this text. Last time we looked at the table of nations, what I call the true history of mankind in the world, because that document gives the true history of mankind in the world like no other document. That document shows us where we all came from, every tribe, every tongue, every people, every race, as we use that word to describe certain differences in our genetic code that appear very clearly to the eye, differences in the color and consistency of the hair, differences in skin color, and in the shape and size of the eyes and of the mouth and the color as well of the eyes. Those differences that we see, basically three, right? Sort of Western European what sometimes is called white man, African, what sometimes is called black man, and Asian, what sometimes is called yellow man. And we have the three sons of Noah who went in those three directions. Isn't it interesting that when they took a segment of the genetic pool, certain features became pronounced and others became uh, uh, su- uh, suppressed, I guess would be a word. They don't come out, what we call the uh, uh, different sorts of traits that you have, the re- regressive traits or dominant traits, right? Why your blue eyes or brown eyes or all that kind of stuff. We're all one family. That's what we saw in this text. We're all one family. We're all brothers. We have the same great, 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 great grandfather and grandmother on our father's side. Noah and his wife. And then we came from one of their sons and one of their wives. And we are all related. Therefore, we are all equal. We saw that in the text. But there was something else in the text that we saw that... We're going to look at now something that caused this division. Why did mankind separate? Why did some people go here and some there and some here? And we saw this phrase repeatedly three times in last week's text that these different people groups were according to their languages. When did that happen? Well, that's what we're going to see in our text. Another phrase that happened in last week's text that I didn't talk about that was mentioned in verse 25, this man Peleg who in his days, it says the earth was divided. What does that mean? Well, that's what we're going to look at in our text. When the earth, when the people of the earth, it's a metonymy, when the people of the earth were divided into their lands and regions and and peoples and tongues and languages, they were divided at the Tower of Babel. That's our text, beloved. This is another foundational text for us to understand this world and human society. Why and how is our world the way it is? Where we have different languages and different nations and different people groups with different racial characteristics and different cultures. Why do we have that? That's what our text shows us this morning. And in showing us that, it shows us how we should live in the light of being a world of nations and tongues and peoples and tribes and languages. And so let's pray as we turn to God's word. Father, again, we thank you for your word, which clears up all of the mysteries of life, the great questions, the big questions that our world often says there are no answers to. 
And then it makes up its own answers, which are wicked, and teach men to do wicked things and pretend like they're good. We know the answers, Father. They're in your word. And moreover, even when we don't know the specific details, we often know the right thing to do because you have put a conscience in every person, even those who've never heard of you. And they feel that conviction. But Father, this morning we are seeing, we will see, how it is that you willed that man would be in such a way that he is today, which indeed includes many problems, and yet which ultimately is for our good. And I pray that you would help us to see that, help us to humble ourselves in the light of this text today, and to look even more expectantly and eagerly to you to do the things that you have called us to do. Help us to be diligent, but help us to look and to give you all the glory. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hear now the word of the Lord from Genesis chapter 11, beginning in verse 1. This is God's holy word. Now the whole earth had one language and one speech. And it came to pass as they journeyed from the east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar, and they dwelt there. Then they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They had brick for stone, and they had asphalt for mortar. And they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower whose top is in the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be scattered abroad over the face of all the earth. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the sons of men had built. And the Lord said, indeed, the people are one, and they all have one language, and this is what they begin to do. Now nothing that they propose to do will be withheld from them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from there over the face of all the earth, and they ceased building the city. Therefore, its name is called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of all the earth. May the Lord establish this word in our hearts this morning, I pray. I want you to notice, first of all, this morning, a grand unity, a grand unity. Beloved, there has never been a time, there will never again be a time when the world was so united like it was at the Tower of Babel. Mankind was truly one. The only place maybe more so was when it was just Adam and Eve after they had fallen and they were united in their rebellion against God and making fig leaves for themselves. They were completely united. But there were only two people then. It's kind of hard to say the whole world and all of its society. But now we can say that there were thousands of people on the earth by this time. Perhaps tens of thousands of people. And in this text we see a complete and total unity. I want you to notice it in verse 1. Now the whole earth had one language and one speech. We see it in verse 2. They journeyed together. They're pictured as one unit, right? From the east. And they found together a plain. 
in the land of Shunar, which many Bible scholars believe is the Hebrew word for Sumer, Sumeria, that Sumerian Valley, the Mesopotamian Valley, were the first signs of actual modern human civilization and activity is found. And, of course, that's what the Bible says, and that's what's true. And we see as they go, what else do they find? They join together in this project. Let us, they said to one another, come, let us make bricks, make them thoroughly, etc. And then verse 4, come. I want to comment on that. Come, come. What are they saying that? It's only a few places where that word is used this way in scripture. It's not the word come. It's the word nathan, which is to give. And it's used in a particular way here. They're saying give. It's a very, it's a very, um, uh, respectful and looking to really uh, unite with another person kind of word, you know, oh, give yourself to me and I will give myself to you. It's this, uh, I don't even, I, I can't say it in English, I'm trying, but it just, it's just connoting this kind of togetherness, right? Not, you're not just saying, come here. You're like really appealing to someone as your equal and your brother. Come, let's do this together. And they see it a couple times. Do you see that? They said to one another, come, let us make bricks and bake them thoroughly. And then verse 4, come, let us build for ourselves a city. Both times it's used that way. Very rare in all of the Old Testament is this word used this way. And what are we seeing here? What is scripture showing us? I think it's showing us this great and profound unity that we have. Let me just apply some of the things that we see here. We see complete fairness here, don't we? We see equity. We see inclusivity, cultural sensitivity. No one's excluded. We see access and empowerment here. No human being was illegal in this society. Let me tell you. If you look at verse 2 and how they go and they find this plane and they decide to do something, here is development. Here is utilization. Here is an equality and a community. Here is a entitlement program where everyone's included. Here is economic and social justice. Here is shared ownership from each according to his need to each according to his ability or backwards. Everyone working together. They're all one. We don't see anything, any differences, any discriminations, any ways in which people are are, are disagreeing here. Do you notice that? Look at verse 3. Let us make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They have brick for stone and asphalt for mortar. What do we see here? We see sustainable economy. We see renewable energy. They're using the materials that come right out of the ground. By the way, to this day, that's the way they make bricks in that part of the land. Because asphalt is common, this bitumen, this tar that comes out of the ground. And they don't have any stone. They have to make the bricks and bake them just the way the text says. And they still do it that way. And it's renewable energy. This is a green energy society, brothers and sisters. Come, let us do this. There's shared responsibility. There's shared success. There's shared wealth. There's shared ownership. There's living wage. There's environmental rights, environmental justice, economic justice, social justice. They've got it all. The society at Babel. Look how awesome they are. Look how they've achieved the utopian dreams of modern progressive liberal society. Do you see it? There are no haves and have nots in this economy. Look at it in verse 4. They said, come, let us build ourselves a city 
And a tower whose top is in the heavens, let us make a name for ourselves, let us be, be scattered over the whole earth. They don't want anyone to be left behind. No one's going to be excluded. They're going to build a city. And of course, we're told the city is where it's at, right? We should be in the city if we're really Christians. And they have in the city what? Trade and education and assistance and training. There would be health care for one another and infrastructure, inclusion, acceptance, open-mindedness, togetherness, tolerance, health justice, housing justice, unity, peace. They have it all in Shinar, in the Tower of Babel. Here at last, beloved, is the one world, one dream, One family, harmony with the animals, with the environment. No one is left behind in this community. Do you see it? The Tower of Babel. The dream fulfilled. There is no one in this text who is privileged or underprivileged. There is no one in this text who is excluded. Everything is shared. Everyone is included. Nothing different differentiates anyone else. Do you read anything in the text that differentiates anyone? There's no employed and unemployed. There's no ruling class or ruled class. There's no owners and non-owners. There's no master enslaved. You know what? Maybe, text doesn't say it, but maybe they were elitist enough. Maybe they were progressive enough. Maybe they were as intelligent and as culturally and as progressively aware as we are today. Maybe even They got rid of the male and female distinction. They might have been that ahead of their time. The text doesn't say anything about males and females. Maybe they were as progressive as we are today. Maybe they were that intelligent and modern and avant-garde and all of those things. And you say, Pastor, you're being a little bit hyperbole. You're being a little bit exaggerating. Well, my, my issue here is to just give you the text as it is presented. We know, of course, there would have been differences, obviously. Okay, I am using hyperbole. However, the text doesn't give us any of them, does it? The text intentionally, God doesn't ever do anything unintentionally. The text intentionally presents to us a, in a concise, deliberate, uniform language of a fully and perfectly united human race. That's what the text shows on purpose that we would see it. There is one language. There is one culture. There is one government. There is one work. There is one value, one purpose, one dream of this society. And it's given to us. And yes, there was one religion. They were one. They were united. There has never been. There will never be a more equal, a more united, a more affirming, a more accepting, a more sharing society than this one. There is nothing in the text about any worldly problems, about any violence, about any strife or crime or discord or poverty or homelessness or unemployment or discrimination or exclusion or anything like that. In fact, the text says, and I affirm, that these people, this society is able to do whatever... They want to do. They can do it. They can do all of it. They can indeed reach to the clouds. That's what the text says. That's not what I say. That's what the text says. That's God's assessment of this 
society. Look at verse 6. And the Lord said, indeed, the people are one. What all of our society is trying to do today, be one. They did it. They were one. God says that. That's not me. The Lord said, indeed, the people are one. And they all have one language, which means one culture, one value system, one society. And notice, and this is what they begin to do. This is just the beginning. God goes on. Verse 6. Now nothing that they propose to do will be withheld from them. That's the word of God. There's nothing that this society cannot do. In fact, many of the texts say instead of withheld, nothing will be impossible for them. Look at the, if you have a New American Standard or an ESV, that's what it says. Nothing is impossible for this society. Whatever enters their mind, whatever they think of, whatever they, they reckon or, or choose, they will be able to do it. Because they're united. There's no differences. There's no strife. There's no division. This society is absolutely one. They are 100% united, inclusive, empowering, and they express their goal. They're going to stay that way. They're all going to work together to make it happen. This is a grand unity. Secondly, I want you to notice a grievous rebellion. I want you to notice a grievous rebellion. There has never been, and there will never be, until Christ returns, a more complete rejection, disbelief, and rebellion against God than this society at the Tower of Babel. It's never been this bad before, and it won't even be when Christ returns because there will be believers on the earth when Christ returns. Of all of the words that I use to describe this united, wholehearted commitment to this human society, they are at the same time, necessarily so, it is at the same time necessarily a conscious, mutinous, rebellion against, and rejection of the will of God, consciously, rebellious, mutiny, treachery. At the same time, that is what is actually going on in the society, in all of their togetherness, in all of their equality and equity and unity and community and inclusion and affirmation, in all of it, they are rebelling against God. Look at verse four, the second half. Let us make a name for ourselves lest we be scattered over the face of the whole earth. And how did they choose to do that? The first half of the text. Come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower whose top is in the heavens. Let us do it. Let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be scattered. Do you see what they're saying? They're saying, let's make a city, let's make a tower... So that we don't have to do what God said. Let's come together and be one. So that we do not have to do the very thing that our fathers all heard God command them to do. Remember I said to you in chapter 9. That all of the people of the world were there. It says Noah's three sons and therefore his wives. They would have been there. And they heard God say what in chapter 9. Verse 1. So God blessed Noah and his sons. And he said to them be fruitful and multiply and Fill up the earth. Go and fill up 
the whole earth. Verse 7 of chapter 9. As for you, be fruitful and multiply. Bring forth abundantly in the earth and multiply in it. And that's a recommissioning, as it were, of what God had originally said all the way back in Genesis 1 when he made man. He said to them, verse 28, be fruitful and multiply. Chapter 1 of Genesis, verse 28, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth. Fill the earth. And subdue it and have dominion, etc., etc. And what are they saying in this society? Let's build a city, let's build a tower so that we will not be scattered, so that we will not fill up the earth, so that we will not do what God said. And we are together on this, and we are one on this, and we have peace in this, and we appreciate and value one another in this, and we will do it all so that we will not do what God said to do. This will be how we will make a name for ourselves. This will be how we will achieve all that we want and all that we need. We will do what God said not to do. Or rather, we will not do what God said to do. You know, it's the very thing that Satan said to Adam and Eve in the garden. Do you want to realize your God likeness? Do you want to be like God? Then do what he said not to do. Eat from the tree. I know he said don't eat from it. Eat from it and you'll achieve all that you want in life in this world. You'll be like God. It's the same thing. God said to go and fill up the earth. No, we'll not do that. And then we'll have a society. And then we'll have a name. And then we'll be at peace. And we'll have security apart from God. Nay, even against him. We won't do what he said because that's better for us. That's what this society said they would do. They deliberately, intentionally said, we will not do what God said, and it will be better for us, and we'll make a name for ourselves, and we'll have this great worldly achievement, and we'll find it here on this world in our own actions, and we will do it. And again, it's the same lie that Satan said in the garden, that by disobeying God, you can be all that you ought to be. That's what this society said. And that's what they tried to do. Thirdly, I want you to notice a great God. A great God. God is all-powerful. God is all-knowing. God knows what they're doing. And yet, verse... Uh, where is it? Verse 5 tells us, But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the sons of men had built. What is this telling us? That God literally came down because he wasn't down here already? No, you know this by now. That's an anthropomorphism. It's using human language to tell us, to to assure us that God very carefully and very deliberately and fully examined all that was happening here and he made a just and perfect judgment. It was as if he came down and checked it all out like a, like a, like a very, very uh, conscientious investigator making sure there wasn't a detail that escaped his notice before he rendered his judgment. God came down to see what they were doing, to see this city. And he saw it and he renders his judgment and he puts a stop to it. All of man was united against God. And God, one of the commentators said, it's like he blows some wind on them and they scatter like dust. Man who thinks he's so mighty, 
who thinks he's so powerful, who can throw off the shackles of God, right? That's why I chose the call to worship that I gave you, the famous Psalm 2, the entire Psalm. Why do the nations rage? We will not have this one to rule over us. We will do it ourselves. And what does it say? God laughs. God laughs at this kind of stuff in the heaven. I know we get caught up in our role today and we see these great powerful movements against God, against the church, against Christians. Christians being punished even in so-called Western and, and free and Christian lands for, for expressing the truths of Scripture, for just believing what the Bible says, for teaching what really is moral, what really is right, what God says is true, and what everyone still knows in their hearts and has to, has to silence to try to allow them to believe it. Nonsense, completely unscientific nonsense, proven nonsense. And that's happening in the world today. And sometimes we might think, where's God, you know? Maybe God's losing. Maybe, 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 maybe we're going to lose. God's laughing at that in heaven right now. And just think of the greatest powerful, most powerful movement, whatever you think it is that's anti-Christian. Whether it's the you know, uh, secular humanism and, and uh, the theory of evolution and the atheism. Whether you think it's the, the, the sexual perversion and the uh, corruption, even denial of things like male and female. Whatever you think it might be. The Islamic movement, whatever you think is the most greatest threat. Take them all together. Make them perfectly united together against God. And God would just have to blow. And they would be scattered. Because that's what he does to this society. Come and let us go down there and confuse their languages. That's why they're one. They can understand one another. And God simply with a word makes it so that they can't. And if they can't understand one another, then you have these pockets who can understand one another and if there's misunderstanding then there's mistrust and if there's mistrust then there's division and so they clearly very quickly divide according to these groups that God himself has created God did it God is all powerful God's still on the throne today I don't care what threat is facing you or the church God is your God trust in him he is laughing he'll bring about his salvation in his time and so fourthly and lastly I want you to notice a gracious judgment a gracious judgment. This text is a judgment on man. Don't miss that. I mean, you, you do see that, right? Here is this great society, the first society of man after the flood. All one, all united. All going to do the very thing God said not to do or not going to do what God said to do. And God comes down and judges that society. Now, what does that society deserve? If God was going to use strict justice and he sees this society explicitly saying they're not going to do what God said. God said, go and be, fill up the earth, scatter, spread abroad, fill the earth. And they say, let's do this so that we don't scatter and fill the earth so that we don't do what God commanded us. What do you think this society deserves? What does every single person in this nation, this world of united people deserve? What do they all deserve from God? They deserve to be killed. They deserve to be thrown into hell immediately. That's what justice demands upon this society. The very same judgment, by the way, on Adam and Eve. What did Adam and Eve deserve when they resisted, disobeyed God intentionally? They should have been thrown in hell. They should have been killed immediately. And yet God, in that judgment on man, when he cursed the ground and made it harder, man has to work by the sweat of his brow and he's going to die. And that judgment which had many difficulties and ultimately was merciful. Man's going to continue to live 
And in that judgment, even God brought the promise of salvation that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the servant. What do we see in this text? We don't see God destroying man. We don't see God sending another flood. And we've already looked at that, that man deserves the flood every day. By the way, many think that's one of the reasons why they built a tower. Because God can't destroy us with water if, if we're too high. If we make a tower high enough, the flood will be underneath us, right? They don't believe God's covenant of preservation. They don't believe God's promise. I'll never again destroy the flood. Or destroy the world with the flood. God promised that. He swore it. He put the rainbow in the cloud so that they would know that he meant it. They don't believe that. They don't trust in God's promise to be safe. They're going to make themselves safe. They're going to build a tower where even if God wanted to, he couldn't destroy them with another flood. So God comes down and he judges this society. And it is a judgment, right? And notice how God does it in the same exact language that the people were using in this harmonious togetherness and this mutual respect society that they had come, come, come. Notice what God does. Verse 7, same word, come. (laughs) Come, Son and Holy Spirit. Come, let us. Calvin says this is the Trinity, again, just like let us make man in his own image. Come, let us. God was always triune. God the Father, in a mocking, mocking the human rebellion, come, let us go down and see this tower and this city that man has built. Come, let us in our unity go down. Come, let us, rather, come, let us go down there and confuse their language that they may not understand one another's speech. There's a lot I could say about that, but I'm running out of time. Um, but I just want to notice here that it's not the tower. It's not the tower that must be stopped. The tower is the threat to God. It's what causes the tower. It's not the outward working. It's the inward rebellion of man. That's what needs to be stopped. That's what needs to be put a stop to here. God has to stop this united rebellion against him, which is happening again all over the place, or all over again. Last time Noah resisted. Noah alone, right, was the only one. And he and his family built the ark and they escaped. We're not given any exceptions in this text. Now, again, some scholars think, you know, Noah's still alive and he, he wouldn't have gone along with this and maybe Shem and a few others. But I just want to go with the text. All the text says is, that, you know, the whole world, one language, one speech, they're all doing this. We know from the tradition of both Christian and Jewish and extra biblical tradition that Nimrod is the king at this time and he's doing this. And so there is some government structure, at least in the tradition. But again, the text presents this unit, unified race where there are no distinctions. Everybody's the same, working together in this harmonious uh, effort to resist God and to make ourselves the way we want to be, right? God made us male and female. No, we'll make ourselves the way we want to be. We'll create reality for ourselves. We'll determine good and evil for ourselves. That was the temptation in a sense. You'll be like God knowing good and evil. You'll determine good and evil. You'll determine what's right and wrong. You don't have to go to the word of God, scripture. You make the decisions. You decide what's right for you and your society. And that's what's going on in this text. That's what's going on in this people. They have united now in this this cosmic treason. They're all against God. And God, I mean, you look at this, what should God do? He should just destroy them. As he should have destroyed Adam and Eve. But God is merciful and God is gracious and God has already committed to man that he is not going to do that again. And so what God does is he comes down and he stops the unity. He stops the harmony. He stops the togetherness. He stops the union in rebellion. He divides them into, yes, nations. 
Did you know that the idea of having nation states that are separate from one another is God's? That's not man's. It's not some great thing we have to overcome. You know, globalism is the answer. It was God who said, no, globalism is not the answer. Nationalism is the answer. We need nations. Why? Because if we don't have nations, we will unite together in one grand conspiracy and rebellion against God. That's what happened. And God said that's the beginning and it will only get worse. When God says nothing that they do will be impossible for them, he doesn't mean that you know, we can make pigs fly or you know, I don't know, breathe underwater. He means that nothing evil that we would want to do would be beyond us. We would unite and do it all. We would completely remake the human race. We would completely reject God. You think wokeism is bad. What would happen if God would let the one world continue in unity and harmony would be unthinkable. No fiction writer has ever written about it in the most disillusioned and and, uh, 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 society that's post-apocalyptic. We've never even imagined the wickedness that would come about. And so God brings a judgment. A judgment that brings separation. A judgment that brings differentiation. A judgment that brings misunderstanding. And therefore mistrust. And therefore deceptive actions. And therefore violent actions. And therefore, yes, wars between nations. We have wars possible now because there's not one nation. And God did it. God did it. God made it so that there would be nations. Because as terrible as it is in the time of war with famine and with disease and with innocence being killed and everything else, all of the effects of having uh, disagreements and divisions in different nations and different cultures and different peoples and even different races and all of that that God did, as, as bad as all of the things that come from all those divisions are, it would be incomparably worse if God would allow man to stay one because man as one would be indefatigable in wickedness. There would be no end to his progress in wickedness. Oh, he would be one. He would be one in absolute rebellion against God. That's what this text teaches us. Do you see that? Indeed, the people are one. They have one language. This is what they begin to do. Now, nothing they propose to do will be withheld from them. It's not like God is doing what Satan said again. Oh, I don't want them to be like me. I better stop it. You know, if you, if you eat from the tree, God knows that you'll be like him. No, that was a lie. They were already like him. They were supposed to listen to him to continue to be like him. And what they became when they ate from him is, is embarrassed and guilty and everything else. And this society is going to completely descend in wickedness. If God doesn't put a stop to it. And so he brings division. He brings different nations and peoples and tribes and separation. And all of the things that we have to this day. With nation against nation. Because if we didn't have that uh, uh, inter-human feuds. We would all together go against God again. And then he would have to destroy us. This judgment brings difficulties. But this judgment is a gracious judgment We should be thrown into hell at this point. And God, by bringing these difficulties, I mean, in a sense, it's like what our founding fathers developed in this country. The separation of powers, right? Because if all the powers are in one, executive, legislative, and judicial, this is what our forefathers thought because they were Christians and raised in a Christian uh, education system. That man, you know, absolute power corrupts absolutely. We can't put all the power in a king. We saw what happened in England. So we'll divide the powers. Why? There'll be checks and balances. Because these naturally evil people, 
in the legislative branch will be checked by the naturally evil people in the judicial branch. And they'll be checked by the natural, naturally evil person in the executive branch. And they will check and balance each other so that this whole world, this nation rather, won't be united again in wickedness. By division, by separation, by all the squabbling that we see in Congress, we are kept from becoming a tyranny. And yeah, it's messy, but this is what we need because we're that bad. We need it. We need separation and division and misunderstanding so that we check each other so that we all don't become Pol Pot or Stalin or Hitler. And that's what God did. And what I want you to notice here is we need to be careful of this not only on the left but on the right. It seems to me that just as in the progressive movement and the woke movement, you know, oh, if we take over, this is the thing, if we ta- and they've done it. They want to take over the institutions and then they'll control the individuals and, and get the individuals to believe what they believe. And that's what they've done. They've taken over the government and the schools and the entertainment industry, right? And everything else. You can't watch TV without seeing, you know, woke garbage being pushed down your throat, even in commercials. It's ridiculous. And so what do you, like, there's a certain faction now of conservatives that are saying, well, we need to do that now. We need to take over the institutions. We need to take over the government and the schools and the corporations and the media. And then we'll legislate top down our Christianity. And by controlling the institutions, we will change the individual. Now show me where Jesus ever said that. Where did he ever say that? Go and win the institutions and then you'll win the individual. Didn't Jesus say the exact opposite? Go and preach the gospel to every creature. Go and make disciples of all nations. And I know what the lunatics do with that verse. Disciple the nations. There's no word make there. The word make needs to be there in English. If anybody who studied Greek analyzed that text, they know that. It has to be there. And if you check Matthew's account with the other accounts, it's clearly making disciples individual believers of all the nations. And that's what Matthew means in that text. He doesn't mean make the nations disciples. Make them Christian nations. Convert the governments. Which is what some ultra-conservative, so-called conservatives are teaching people now in establishing the new Christendom or whatever you want to call it. Yeah, that worked great when it was the Holy Roman Empire. That was awesome. Christendom did a great... No, it was so wicked that God had to... It was, that's when the Rome fell. Christian Rome fell. Not pagan Rome. Christian Rome. And the medieval society under the Pope, oh yeah, that, that was a great thing too. That really worked out well. It was so bad that our forefathers in the Protestant faith had to flee to America to be able to, to do it, to, to have freedom of worship again. Beloved, that's not the answer. We're not called to do that. We're not called to take over so that by top down, we will legislate Christianity. We're called to preach the gospel to every creature. That's the true unity. That we have, and that's the only unity that we can have in this world till Christ returns. I want to influence our government and the schools and the media, and I want to do that as much as I can as a Christian, but I am not called. And neither are you to take them over. Right? If if disciple let me just say it this way: if disciple the nations means make the nations Christians, then it's never happened. For two thousand years, no one has succeeded. The apostles didn't succeed. Show me the Christian nation. Where is it? What nation has been converted to Christ? The Christian nation. 2,000 years. That's never happened. That's not what it means, guys. It doesn't mean 
make the nations Christians. It means disciple the people. Make the people. Give the gospel to the people. And those from every tribe, tongue, and nation will believe. And they'll be salt and light throughout the world. Because Jesus said his kingdom is not of this world. If it was, his servants would fight for him. And there are people on the right now ready to fight for Christ. You know, like the Crusades again. That, that was great. We still have to defend against that madness. That's not what we're supposed to do. What's going on in this text? God's confused the language. He's divided the people. They don't understand one another. And we recognize the judgment of that. And we want to overcome it. And it has been overcome already. That's what Pentecost was. Pentecost was the unbabble. When God sent out the very first time the Christian people and Peter preaches the first Christian sermon and what happens? Acts chapter 2 verse 6, the mighty wind came out, the crowd came together and each person began to declare the mighty works of God. Right? In languages he didn't understand, not himself, not make a name for myself. Declared the mighty works of God in what happened, Acts 2, 6. And when this sound occurred, the multitude came together. They were confused because everyone heard them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and they marveled and they said, Are these not all Galileans? How is it that we hear our own languages? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, etc., etc. We hear them speaking in our own languages. What? A name for ourselves. No. The wonderful works of God. And so they were amazed and they were saying to one another, what could this mean? And many people today still don't know in the church, still don't know what could this mean? This is the unity in the preaching of the gospel in believing and repenting, not taking over the world. Jesus will do that when he comes back and maybe he'll give us nation. Maybe we'll influence this. Maybe there'll be a great revival and reformation. And I pray that there will be one, but our hope is in the power of God in the gospel to convert individuals. That's his plan. That's what we're called to do. And may God grant that we do it with zeal. Let's pray. Father, we thank you in Jesus' name for your goodness. We thank you that you showed us the overcoming of this curse at Babel. We got a picture of it at Pentecost. When your gospel went forth and it overcame the division of language and all could hear about you. And that's what we should be doing, Lord God, in the church, that all would hear about you and that we would do so in every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And until you decide that those divisions end, we will focus on the gospel and we will focus on glorifying God and not ourselves. Help us to believe you enough to do that. Help us to be brave enough to do that. And we pray this, Lord Jesus, our captain, our king, in your name. Amen.